The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Please join me now in Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will he, him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate you, brother. Praise the Lord, people of God. Praise the Lord, people of God. God is good, isn't he? Isn't he a good and faithful God? And you believe it. Um, thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Uh, we, that is just a powerful uh, way in which we just call on the name of the Lord. And that not only do we call, but he just knows us in a very intimate way. And so that, that's incredible that the God of the universe, the one that created all things, he knows who you are. And so let's continue to praise that God. Amen, somebody. Let me pray for us as we, before we get into the word of the Lord. Father, we love you. We love you so much because you know our name and that you first love us. And God, we know that there is no one like you. And Jesus, we will continue to call upon your strong name. And we will continue, Lord, to trust in your name. There is no Lord in this world that is more powerful than you. There is no God that can do the things that you have done. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. Thank you for your covenant that doesn't change. Thank you for your character that does not change. Thank you for the blood that we will purchase with. As you atone for us, Lord Jesus, we help us 
to redirect our hearts so that we will always face you and turn to you as our gracious Lord and Savior. For Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your precious name. All God's people said together, amen. As many of y'all know that we have been going through a sermon series which is entitled Covered. Uh, and as we have been going through this sermon series and journeying through the Psalms through the summer, we've been alternating through Psalms of praise and Psalms of lament. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago in preaching on the Psalm of lament, which was Psalm 22, I mentioned what a Psalm, act, what a psalm of lament is, what lamentation actually is, which is one of the oldest literary genres in the Old Testament. And there are four kinds that we typically see. A funeral lament, a lament, a community lament, and an individual lament, and a, and a city lament. Which lament could be complaining, conf- confessing, uh, just outright wailing to God. And it helps us because it, it allows us to construct a framework to process suffering, loss, injustice, uh, 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 um, and grieving in areas, which is, what does it do? It's encouraging us to actually face the reality of our world, our society, local communities, and our individual brokenness. If we don't lament, we're actually not recognizing that there is a problem in our world, that there's a problem with us, there's a problem in our society and our communities. Lamentation actually means that in recognizing that we cry out to the only one who can change the things that need to be changed. Amen. You are a testament of God's grace because He's changed you. He's transformed you. And you can lament the fact that what you have gone through in life has been so troublesome that you can only trust in God to continue to help you bear through these things. This morning, this is what we see as we look at David who is lamenting, who is in deep distress, but yet he's trusting in God. In deep distress, but yet he's trusting in God. And there are several of us in this room who can relate to this psalm where we have been in deep trouble and yet we have to trust or we, we trust in God in difficult situations. Do you remember when you, when you were bullied or when you were called names or when you were slandered or when you were dealing with a life-threatening health issue or when you were dealing with the trauma for your childhood or from sexual abuse or other forms of abuse that have scarred you for life? These things should be lamented and not suppressed. Which then means when you lament them, there's an actual, there's, this, this is how God is your counselor. Because when you talk to him, when you go to him, you're acknowledging the fact that yes, I may need to pursue psychological help, but there is only one that can do a transforming work from what has happened to me to where I am going. Amen, somebody. (coughs) And thus, when you understand that, you see that it is by God's grace that you're able to still trust in him. It is by God's grace that you're able to still trust in Him. So let me ask you this. What is, going, what it, what is it that you have gone through, going through, that you're continuously, continuously suppressing? That you don't want to talk to God about it? That you don't want to bring up to anybody else? What is it that, that is causing that in your life? I want you to think about that for a minute. 
Because that's the reason in which we, if we do not lament, it's the reason we continue to allow ourselves to dismiss those who are oppressed, who are marginalized, who are not given a voice. You realize that it's not just because you have less money in your bank account that you don't experience oppression. You realize that it's not because you aren't going through generational poverty that you're not dealing with oppression. The issue of it is, is that all of us are dealing with the brokenness in our society. But we can't deny it by not going to God, confessing what's going on in our hearts, in our minds. But how does this help us when it comes to worship? Because we come here every single time and we sing praises to God, we pray before God, but do we allow our hearts and our imaginations to be recalibrated in which we are reorienting everything that is causing us to be distracted in life that we're calling out to God? There's nothing we experienced this morning hearing believers wail to God. There's nothing wrong with calling out to his name in a way that shows that you are going through something, have gone through something. And if we deny that, then what we say to ourselves is that we are not allowing ourselves to be heavenward with our hope, but we're counting on ourselves to deal with the deep issues in our life. We turn on the TV and we look at people and we see issues and we allow ourselves to dismiss the pain and the hurt and the suffering that we see in our society. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? Here it is, this series has been trying to help us worship. This series has been trying to help us see that there's no one style of worship. That God has given us many styles of worship. If you have been in different countries, if you've been with different people, you didn't see, if you go to Africa, you didn't see that people are going to dance in worship. If you go to Argentina, you'll see that people are going to be extremely expressive in worship. You'll see various different expressions and styles of worship. But what we say here this morning, what we've been saying throughout this series, that the idea in which downtown church allows itself to have deep, diverse expressions of worship then come in context of how we actually look to the needs of each other. What am I saying? I just said a lot. I know. But let me, let me break it down. Essentially what I'm saying is, what you experienced this morning by hearing the wailing of other believers, by hearing the expression of worship, what I am saying is, and those that are more contemplative in, which, in the way that they worship, I am saying that there's nothing wrong with that. If you just take a lap around here, there's nothing wrong with that. If you start dancing and your feet start moving in a particular way, there's nothing wrong with that. If you're sitting there and your eyes are closed and you're weeping or you're thinking to the Lord, there's nothing wrong with that. The movement in which we are worshiping, we're moving it from an intellectual experience to a reorientation of our hearts. That's why we lament. And our hope is that we're collectively sanctified through this diverse expression of worship. Collectively sanctified. Because what we see and the benefit that we have from Psalm 21, I mean 25, is that we actually see David 
lamenting. We actually see David who's in deep distress and we're learning from his life. We can do the same thing from each other. But what is David teaching us? Here's one thing that I want you to keep and lock in. I think this is what David teaches us this morning and what the Lord wants to say to us, beloved, is that when you wait on God amid trouble, hear this, he's promised to strengthen you, to lead you, and bring you salvation. When you wait on God amid trouble, he has promised to strengthen you, to lead you, and to bring you salvation. Many of you think that trouble, the absence of trouble means liberation. But that is not true. God being present with you through trouble is the idea in which as Christians, we always are calling on his name. Am I making sense this morning? So how do we do this? How do we wait on God amid trouble and then he promises to strengthen us, to, to actually lead us and bring us salvation. Well, I think he does it through enemies. He does it actually with guidance in his grace and under his promise. Through enemies, with his guidance, in his grace, and under his promise. When we look at the first deal here is through his enemies, David, when you go to verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. Lead me not, be, let, I'm sorry, let me not be put to shame. Let, me, let not my enemies exult over me. At the outset, David, in this psalm, David makes it clear that he clings to, the, to, cling to God because that's his very confidence. And that as he's lamenting whether he dies or whether he lives, he is going to continue to trust in God and he is supremely devoted to God and God alone. But why does he emphasize the fact that I need to trust you? I will lift my soul up to you. Oh God, I trust you. And the next thing he says is, let me not be put to shame. Let me not be put to shame. Here's the lamentation. Here's the lament. Let me not be put to shame and let not my enemies be exalted over me. Don't let them tower over me and look down upon me. Don't let them abuse me and take advantage of me, God. Help me in this situation. David is being completely vulnerable and he's trusting God because he knows that in a culture where there is a, where is a heavy honor culture that he does not want to be shamed. He does not want to be perceived as weak. Many of y'all looking at me crazy. But I want you to think about how many things you feel shamed about. How many opportunities you have stepped away from because you feel too weak? How many situations where you feel that you've been, you've been abused and enemies have towered over you? In a culture where David is the king and he is, led, and he is dealing with these issues and his household is in distress, I want you to think about this reality where David is actually trying to speak about the trouble in his heart, but he's doing it in a psalm in an artistry way. Because this is an acrostic psalm, meaning that he uses the Hebrew alphabet in order for him, for us to actually memorize this psalm. What am I saying? To all of my creative people, all of my creative people and those that don't have a creative bone in your body, 
you realize it's okay to create songs, poetry, other things in order to demonstrate what's going on in your heart, what's going on through your life. It is definitely a godly therapeutic way in, in, in order to deal with what's, what has been the trauma, what, what the, 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 the issues of your, uh, of your past. This is what David teaches us, and this is what we see. But I know many of y'all are thinking to yourselves, well, Mike, I know that I need to trust God and it's important to endure and and not to avoid the shame. I I know that, but then I got to ask you a question. Do you trust God with the shame? Do you trust him with your vulnerabilities? Is, Is what you're doing lamenting to God and confessing to God on a regular basis? Trusting God that he hears your cries, he hears your complaints, that he actually gives you a level of assurance and strength through your spirituality. Do do you hear me this morning? Uh, uh, Because what I want you to know is many of you guys who've been taunted, who've been made fun of for living in celibate lives, you don't think about that. I'm not going to have sex until I'm married. I'm going to actually make sure that that I don't adhere to what the world says. My family says I'm crazy because I'm I'm actually trusting in God and trying to live this way. They're making fun of me because I don't indulge or overindulge in certain activities. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I believe David is saying is, is that what you go through and what you deal with should actually be expressed in the context of worship. What you go through and what you deal with should be expressed in the context of worship. Those that abuse you, those that hurt you, those that have been enemies to to you, once again, I want to say that it should be expressed in the context of worship. Because I even think about kids. My son, who's only, he's just turned five. But they, as, as toddlers, they belittle each other. They're actually dealing with shame. They're actually dealing with pain. They're comparing themselves. And I think about that because nobody, none of us can say we haven't dealt with that shame. And it eats away at us. I want you to hear this. that, that, That what David is trying to say is that I don't want God to mitigate the pain. I just want him to be with me through it. That makes a substantial difference. Because if you're only looking for God to be in your life to, to, to just do away with the pain, to make sure that you don't have to ever suffer, then you're missing it. Because look at what he says in verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantingly treacherous. If I'm waiting on God, I won't be put to shame. Waiting on God is an idea in which 
the prophet Isaiah says in 40, chapter 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with, e with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. These lights are burning me. But, beloved, I want, you to, I want you to hear this, that when we work hard and when we try to hide our shame and when we try to dismiss our weakness, we're not waiting on God. When we try to hide our shame, dismiss our weakness, we are not waiting on God. We're trying to do it ourselves. We're trying to work harder. We're trying to be stronger. We're trying to do it ourselves in every other capacity. But can we do it ourselves? Can you make your marriage better yourself? Can you actually fight every battle yourself? Can you Deal with that rape that happened in college yourself. Can you deal with the sexual abuse that you had felt when you were a kid yourself? Can you actually deal with the pain of the addiction that continues to call you back every time yourself? No. You cannot. The prophet Isaiah says you need God. And your trusting in God requires his guidance. That's when we get to verses 4 through 5 where he says make or show me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. And teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Wait a minute. Lead me, make me, teach me, and teach me. Four verbs that he is using within this, this, short, this short stanza where he is trying to acknowledge the fact that in order for him, amen, thank you, in order for him to continue to trust in the Lord and his guidance, thank you, the Lord going to bless y'all. He got an extra anointing for y'all in heaven. Amen. Amen. Rubies, all that good stuff. Listen. Teach me. Make me. Hold on. Make me. Teach me. Lead me. And teach me. He says again. Which are clear indicators that he is, look, the psalmist needs God's guidance. And the idea is that God will reveal and provide discernment regarding his will and his way or his way to David. And David needs to navigate not just his family but political issues. He, he needs to navigate possibly the issues that he has with Aslam, his own son who's trying to kill him. I want you to think about that. David said, God, I, I, need you to, I need you to make me know your way. I need you to make me know your way. God is actually instructing him to impart in, by imparting skills and knowledge to him in a way, amen, in a way that will bless him That 
that will bless him to lament to God as an individual. But here's where what we learn from this is that God making us does not mean that God dictates. God making us means that he begins to transform. God making us means he begins to transform. God leading us means that we begin to trust in his unchanging hand, what we sing. So you see that the idea of the series to even be covered by God is this notion that we are covered because God is leading us, making us, and teaching us. But when God, when we don't make or when we begin to make our own decisions, or when we begin to lead in our own directions, what happens is, is that we don't see God's will clear, clearly for ourselves. And that the work that needs to happen in us is not clear discipleship. You can actually see that lamenting is a form of discipleship for all of us who experience spiritual warfare and opposition and or opposition to, from, a, from our culture. And it depends upon God's truth. Y'all looking at me crazy again. I know I'm putting y'all to sleep. But I need y'all to hear me. Because this is practically how we, we work this out. This is, when Paul talks about spiritual warfare and that we can't use fleshly things, then what do we use? If, if this battle is not f to be... To, to fight with our fists or to fight with guns or swords, anything like that. What do we use? Prayer. Lamenting. God's word. Confessing. Calling out to him. There is nothing wrong with complaining about what's going on in our society. There's nothing wrong with complaining about what has happened in our lives. We think a lot of times, I don't need to complain to God. Some of us have been taught not to complain to God, not to confess to God, and to actually dismiss any kind of pain because God's going to take care of it. That's not what the, that's not what the psalmist teaches us. If you're going through something, if you're dealing with severe trauma, if you're dealing with the pain, you have to appeal to God's steadfast love that he remembers you. Look at the next one. Verses 6 through 8. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love for what happens? For they have been, they have been from old. Remember not my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. What I want you to do, God, is remember me. Here's the good news. God does not see you through the lens of your sin. God does not see you through the lens of your failures. God does not see you through the lens of your shame. He sees you through the work of Christ. He sees you through the work of the cross. And some of y'all are saying to yourself, I know that already. That's what's in the Bible. But I'm asking you, have you trust in this? This ain't new news, but have you trust in this good news? And if you believe this, then you will cry out to God. You won't suppress your feelings. If you believe this, you will continue to on a week in and a week out basis believe in truth over lies. Because when the psalmist says, 
Remember me, don't remember my guilt, Lord. Don't remember my shame. Help lead me because if you imagine God leading you, just think about going through a maze, but then the devil tries to remind you. Remember when you had that pornography addiction? And you're walking through the, and the, and the screen, it pop up on the screen, and, 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 you, and God's saying, just focus on me. And then you keep walking. Oh, you, you remember when you was drinking too much? Remember when you start smoking dope? Remember when you start doing, and you remember every transgression and everything that happened to you. Remember that abortion. You remember when you abused women. Do you remember when you abused drugs? Do you remember when you were actually denying me? And what God says is, none of those things matter because the path that I have you on, if you continue to walk towards me, you can walk past every lie that the devil says to you and believe truth. So lamenting is not this idea in which when you're crying out to God, it is this sad thing. Lamenting is an empowerment of a spiritual reality that strengthens you to continue to press towards the mark, to continue to walk through life. Because I'm telling you right now, I know many of y'all are bearing things, but you don't want to talk to nobody about it. You don't want to talk to your community group. You don't want to talk to your brothers and or sisters. You don't want to talk to your parents about what you're going through. You don't want God to lead you. You, you just want to, you, you don't want to remember it. You, you want to forget it. And God is saying, I remember you. And there's nothing that I am going to do to dismiss the things that you've been through. I'm going to strengthen you, transform you, empower you, and make you greater than what you have already been. Why? Because that's what the Bible says through progressive sanctification, through God changing us over time. But this is his guidance, right? Through our enemies, God makes us. He strengthens us. He actually leads us, and he brings salvation. And through, our, through his guidance, he strengthens us. He actually leads us, and he brings us salvation. But in his grace, we actually see this so much as well. God is so gracious. I want y'all to see this. God is so gracious. When you look at verse, uh, when you look at verse 8, you may, you may overlook it, but it says God, I mean good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, what does he do? Instructs the sinners in the way. Uh, is God just talking about people coming or is, is um, uh, David only talking about people coming to know the Lord as sinners? No, God is so sovereign. He is so just. This is what upright is. He is so just. He is so good that even sinners are instructed in the way that they should go. It was said that he doesn't condescend. He, can, he, can, he condescends to sinners. He condescends to sinners the way in order to teach them the way that leads to life. This is what he does to sinners. Imagine what he does to the humble. This is what he says in the next verse. He says, he leads the humble in what is right. And he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithful, faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. God, this, you may say to yourself, well, this must be some universalist ideology where God is looking and instructing sinners and he loves everybody. God does love everybody. But he actually loves those whom he called and are living in obedience to his word. 
So with this, God isn't, this isn't God instructs sinners just so that uh, all people may be encompassed in God's love. No, that's not what this is. It's actually a picture of God's compassion and love to sinners so that they may possibly be transformed by his instruction. But if they aren't, it's a lamenting of the fact that they haven't been. Again, in our lamenting both individual and corporate, we ought to cry out to God. We ought to take a page out of God's book by crying out for distressed communities, unjust legal systems, drugs in our communities that kill our people. God, we, we ought to cry out to God for those who have been caught up in sex trafficking. We ought to cry out to God for the generational poverty. We ought to cry out to God for the racism that is seen. We ought to cry out to God. The list goes on. We need to cry out to God, not just for ourselves, for, but for others. This is the picture that we see by his grace. Why? Because when you have a deep understanding of the forgiveness of your guilt and your shame, then you will have a deep understanding for what other people are going through. You will be more empathetic. You will be more sensitive. This is actually why in our vision we say that we love Christ and neighbor. That we're forming this new community, this new humanity in which we want to love our neighbor, and we want to love our enemies, those who betray us, those who lie on us, those who try to laugh at us for keeping our faith. We want to love them. Why? Because God shows us that we need to have compassion. He shows us that we need to have compassion. But this, this idea of guilt, it plagues many of us. Because just this week, many of y'all have done something that you, that you feel guilt that you feel shame. I know this because <laughs> it's the same for me. We're not perfect, right? But I want you to listen to this because it's David Brooks who argues that religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. Guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. And he makes the point by quoting uh, another man. He says, technology gives us power, and power entails responsibility, and responsibility leads to guilt. And you see a picture of a starving child in Sudan, and we know inwardly that we're doing, we're not doing enough. Whatever donation you may make to a charitable organization, you'll never feel like it's enough. You'll never feel like you're giving enough. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. And we're shaped by religious categories and need to feel morally justified. And yet, they, here's the problem that Brooks identifies. We have no clear framework, beloved, or set of ritual, rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There's sin, but there is sin, but a no formula for redemption. 
essentially when, when we look at this and we see in our society that guilt doesn't go away, we have to say to ourselves, then what is this redemptive framework that allows us to see past our guilt? Whenever MJ gets in trouble, it's funny because he doesn't want to tell the truth. It's just funny, right? And, and so, you know, I learned from my mama that you got to get a look, right? He doing something he ain't supposed to be doing. And so then, you know, you just, you just, mm. and he, you know, he looking, he like, what's that look, man? That a pinching, that a spanking, what the, what the, so what you do, MJ? Oh, nothing. Uh, you know, MJ, tell, tell mommy and daddy what you did. I didn't do nothing. I don't want to tell. I don't want to talk about it. Right? But what we got to do is, what we do is, we have to say, we, we say to him, it's okay. <laughs> You're not in trouble. Just tell mommy and daddy what you did. And then he begins to, to as, as, as we have said that numerous times, he begins to, well, I did, uh, you know, uh, you know. He tells us, but we have to reassure him that there is a, a, a love and redemptive formula that allows him to be truthful and not holding shame and guilt from what he's done so that he can be liberated through that. So in God's grace, when you understand that it is God's riches at Christ's expense, you know that it's not your expense that you are liberating yourself. And you know that it's by God's grace at Christ's expense that you are liberated and free from sin. Pardon from guilt. Many of you who come from more high liturgical churches have heard the confession and then heard the assurance of pardon and responded with a song. It gives you such a sense of love and care because what you understand is, is that God is not dictating what happens or he doesn't change. What happens is God assures me that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He's not condemning me. That the prophets testified about the, about, about the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus and that we have that assurance and that assurance partners of our guilt. You may say, well, I had a past life. I'm a single parent. I done, dealt, I done done this. God doesn't love me like this. But can I tell you, there's a grace that is so large, that is so big, that is not just because you're a single parent and you did this, that God doesn't love you or that you can't show up to church or you can't be a believer. God doesn't love me because I'm still out here clubbing. I'm still out here doing my thing. I'm still out here doing such and such and such. God loves you regardless of what you're doing. He just continues. As he loves you, he'll change you. He'll work on you. But you got to believe in his grace. And finally, when you understand that I'm strengthened, I'm led, and I'm brought salvation through my enemies, with his guidance, in his grace, under his promise, gives us this idea in which we need a hope. And what oxygen is to our lungs, such as hope is to the meaning of life. I remember when watching X-Men, I, I just kind of put this in my bag, but Professor X was like, 
your superpower is hope. Christian, can I tell you, that's your same superpower. That what is amazing and true is that you, that we walk cautiously and God, and God guides our feet. And if we lift our eyes constantly to the Lord, then we won't be caught up. We won't be strangled. We won't stumble. But God will take us, lift our foot out of the net. Why? Because who does he say? What does he say? Fearing the Lord actually strengthens us. When you look at what he says, look at verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. I'm going to skip right down to verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net, turn me, and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged, bringing me distress, bringing me out of distress. So he's talked about his loneliness. He's talked about being entangled. He's talked about actually being distressed and in trouble. But then he's also said that and remembered in verse 18, consider my affliction and my, and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Appealing to God's covenant love once again. And then he brings up how many foes he has in verse 19 and the violent hatred that they hated him with. Under God's promise, he said that he's going to rescue us. He said he's going to deliver us. The idea in which we cry out to God is the same notion in which we know that we're hoping for something to come that's greater. Because I cry out to God means that I trust that He is coming back to redeem, to rescue, and to renew and restore all things. This is the promise. And how do we know that this is the promise and that our hope doesn't put us to shame? Because it's in Romans 5, 1 through 11, where he tells us this, where he says that endurance produces character and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out on us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love strengthens you. His hope motivates you. His promise assures you. And David lets us know in verse 22 that his promise actually helps you see all of people, all of God's people. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his trouble. Don't just pray for yourself. Don't just lament on your own behalf. Lament for others. And here's what I want us to do as I conclude. I want us to practically do this as a church. This week, I want us to take four requests. And if you want to add more, then do it. But these four requests, I want you to spend 20 to 30 minutes each day crying out to God. And if you journal, you write poetry, you write songs, whatever it is, I want you to use your artistry. I want you to use these gifts in order to lament to God. Day one, I want you to lament to God regarding families that are grieving the loss and sickness. Lament to God about the pain of loss. Lament to God about how, about how, 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 how suffering is hard and pray for strength. And day two, the power of inequality in our 
in our church, in our society. I want you to lament to God about the areas of inequality in, in education, in the justice system, structural poverty, sexism, and racism, etc. And then I want you to also, day three, lament to God about divorce in the church. Lament to him about the high rates of divorce. Lament to him about adultery and sexual immorality. And pray for healthy marriages and households. And then day four, I want you to lament to God about loneliness and guilt. Many of us should lament that, that, uh, about what we see in our communities. Lament for those that are struggling with guilt and shame and pray for freedom and friendship. That helps us because this week, as you do that and spend that time doing it, there's an expectation when you come together, all together, that we've, this entire week, we've been doing something that's the same. And we come to, we're going to come next week to praise God, hoping that he, we see change, hoping that we see transformation, but hoping with a level of anticipation for worship. Amen, somebody. I hope, I, I hope you weren't bored, but I want you to know that this is a practice that Richard used those three words, practice, discipline, and schedule, that helps us throughout our week not to feel aimless, but to feel directed. So let me pray for us, and let me cry out to God on our behalf as the worship team comes up. Father, we love you and we thank you that you are a God who continues to remind us of your steadfast love, of your tender mercies, that you have made us to lie down in green pastures, that you will lead us by still waters. But God, there are so many things in our hearts that we have yet to bring up to you. And we're struggling. And I ask, Lord, that you help us. Help us know that you're a God that will answer our prayers, that we don't have to put a mask on, and that you will, you will continue to hear us, even when we don't feel like you've answered. For we pray these things in your dear son Jesus' name. All God's people say it together.